The following audio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome to ThalPals, the Alpha Beta Revolution. Whether you're a thalassemia patient, a caregiver, a partner, or provider, this podcast is meant for you. I'm your host, Dr. Kevin Kuo. And I'm your co-host, Larice Levine. The Alpha Beta Revolution will strive to provide listeners with critical education, the latest scientific updates, voices from the greater global community of people who are impacted by thalassemia. Today, we have a really unique and exciting audio experience. We recently traveled to New Orleans, Louisiana, and there, in partnership with Agios, we participated in a live podcast with an amazing group of people in thalassemia, in sickle cell disease, and pyruvic kinase deficiency. They include patient advocates and leading hematologists, as well as researchers, and you'll meet them in just a moment. We'll also introduce a groundbreaking patient advocacy movement called the Red Cell Revolution. So without further ado, please welcome your host, MC, host of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, Dr. Amar Zaidi. All right, guys. I'm Dr. Z. I'm Amar Zaidi, and I am very happy to be here. And I'm going to start this the way we start every podcast. If you haven't listened to Cheat Codes, the way we go into it is we say, what's up, Cheat Codes listeners? It's me, Dr. Z. And I'm here with a very special Cheat Codes, where we are broadcasting live from New Orleans. So for those of you who Cheat Codes is new to, again, my name is Amar, and I am first and always a sickle cell advocate, physician, co-founder and co-host of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, and most recently an aspiring drug developer. And at Agios, I like to believe that I'm living my best life because I'm getting to work on bringing new therapies to sickle cell patients. And every so often, they'll give me a microphone, put me in a virtual studio, and let me kick it around with Dr. Callahan over there and some exceptional guests. And that really is a lot of fun for me. We've got a motto at Agios, and that is we are fueled by connections. And in that spirit, I've got some amazing connections I want to share with all of you guys today, and they're right here. In this digital age, where everything is about generating content, at Agios, we have doubled down on hemolytic anemias, and spreading the word in clever ways. So under the Agios umbrella, we've got three podcasts. Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast I host with Dr. Callahan. Thal Pals, Alpha Beta Revolution, what a cute name, <laughs> hosted by Dr. Kevin Kuo and Loris Levine. And then we've got the Pyruvate Kinase Deficiency podcast, Just Listen, the Voices of PK Deficiency, which is hosted by Dr. Rachel Grace. Now these hosts and the team at Believe work immensely hard to generate podcast content and release it once a month. And it's a wild ride. And what we thought is we're going to take you on this wild ride with us today. You may be wondering how you ended up here tonight, right? Like, what's the story? And the story's pretty cool. The story actually is about my friend Holly. Where'd she go? (laughs) Holly. So Holly, our senior director of patient advocacy, calls me one day. She's very good at her job, a dear friend. And I know when she calls me, she's usually got a really good idea. And she says, Amar, I have an idea for Ash. And I knew there was something big coming from her. She says, you know how you guys get patients for your podcast? You get doctors, you get these experts, you put them into these virtual studios and you record podcasts over hours per month. 
Well, what if we take all of these components and we put them under the same roof, in the same room, record really rich content live in New Orleans in front of a live audience? And I was sort of like, wait, three disease spaces, three types of patients, three types of doctors in one place at one time in front of a live audience of hematologists just to show them what our vision is. And I thought, you know what, today's the day. This is the day that Holly John has lost her mind. <laughs> Because this is, of course, a Herculean task. And, and just as I was getting ready to tell Holly, Holly, this is never going to work, she said something that stopped me dead in my tracks. And it's something I think about every day. She said, Amar, the patients have more in common than not. Boom. The patients have more in common than not. And after she said that to me, that was all I needed to hear. I was all in on this idea. And now, all of you, whether you like it or not, are in it with me. All of you are in it with me as well. See, we're on a journey towards finding common ground. Common ground for patients, common ground for doctors, common ground for all of us. Because in this increasingly divisive world, it's important to find things that connect us. And in order to answer some of the hardest questions, we have to learn to work together and work together really well. And no matter who you are in this room tonight, you've walked into this room and done a lot of things. But the thing you've done most, and most likely best, is make red blood cells. 75 million in the last 30 minutes, to be exact. We're nothing more than factories that make red blood cells and walk around. And that's because red blood cells, they give us life. They make us feel really good. They give us oxygen so we can carry out what we need to do every day, day after day after day. But the truth is, sometimes red blood cells fail us. Sometimes, in their quest to give life, red blood cells can simultaneously diminish life. Red blood cells, much like, frankly, people, are a little contradictory in that way. They're supposed to help us and sustain us and make us feel alive, but sometimes they make us feel terrible. And that's a really hard thing to explain to someone who's never felt the fatigue of anemia. It's really hard to explain that to someone who's never felt the pain of a missed opportunity. But the patient with sickle cell disease, man, that patient knows the tiredness of the pyruvate kinase deficiency patient and the thal patient. And that mother whose child has pyruvate kinase deficiency, she's talked to other patients about the yellow in her child's eyes, just like the sickle cell mom and the thal mom. All of them have spent hours looking for competent, compassionate care that they can find close by. All of them have felt the anxiety of transitioning from pediatric care to adult care, and the anxiety of having this burden of minimal or no available therapies for this rare blood disease that they have. The patients in the disease space of poorly functioning red blood cells, they've walked a really hard road. And mostly, in spite of the very common ground I have just now highlighted for you, they've walked that road alone. Today, in this joint recording for Cheat Codes, Thal Pals, and Just Listen, we're in search of that common ground. We're in search of what we can learn from each other to improve patient experience, outcomes, and respect the individuality and unique differences of each disease space. Holly, Janie, and the patient advocacy team have spent the last year thinking about some of these ideas with these panelists right here. And that project is called the Vision Project. They've explored important questions like, what is the value across all hemolytic anemias of credible education, access to information, and how should that information flow? Does it flow from doctor to patient, patient to doctor, doctor to doctor, patient to patient? These are important questions that deserve to be answered. They've also asked, what is the value of meaningful connections and patient support for treatments? 
What is the vision for patients at Agios? But most importantly, what is their vision for us? So let's get to it. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to engage the members of this panel to join the discussion with me. How's the panel doing? Good. You guys good? Oh, yeah. yeah? Ready to go? Yeah. All right. There's no going back. This is it. <laughs> so because Dr. C is my co-host on Cheat Codes, I'm going to pass you the ball first, my friends. You and your neighbor right next to you, Dr. Andmeriam, both hematologists, you spent a little bit of time thinking about the Vision Project, participating in the Vision Project. Tell us a little bit about what some of the key takeaways were for you two. Thank you, Dr. Callahan, Dr. Zaidi. So I would say participating in the Vision Project was very, very memorable for me, and I'll tell you why. So I've had the opportunity, you know, having been in the sickle cell space as an adult care provider for over 15 years now, of being in the room with a lot of other experts in caring for individuals with sickle cell disease. And I've also had the opportunity of being in the room with individuals living with sickle cell disease and their families. What was different about the Vision Project is that for the first time I was in a room with experts focusing on these other conditions very, very similarly related to sickle cell disease. So other experts like those who take care of individuals with thalassemia and pyruvate kinase deficiency, and also individuals living with these conditions, pyruvate kinase deficiency and thalassemia. And what I heard during the Vision Project dialogue is what you said, Mike, that there were more commonalities than there were differences. And for me, I left that the end of that very long day feeling like this is a real opportunity to bring all of these great minds and all of these passionate people and all these individuals living every day with these various conditions that are more similar than different to be that collective voice, that more powerful unified voice to seek and find the change that we really need, not only in this country, but I think in this world to make sure that these underserved conditions get the same prioritization when it comes to novel therapies and access to care that other more common illnesses get. So thank you. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, healthcare professionals, patients, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near-term, Agios is focusing on hemolytic and acquired anemias including sickle cell disease, pyruvate kinase or PK deficiency, and thalassemia. To learn more, visit agios.com. That's A-G-I-O-S.com. After hearing the physician perspective, I think it's important that we talk a little bit about the patient perspective. So I'm going to ask Cass and Jill to tell me a little bit about what they learned as far as some of the commonalities across patients with these rare blood disorders. Well, I'm going to start, and Cass, you can go off of what my thoughts are here. Living over 60 years, feeling alone with PKD, and meeting my first PKD person a year ago, I was alone for six decades. But to come together on the Vision Project and see other PKD people, but it opened up my world to what I call cousins. I have relatives that have crazy, weird blood cells like I do. But the similarities, not only physically with what we deal with, but also emotionally what we've gone through. 
were more than I thought. I heard a sickle cell. I think it's more common. Thalassemia, maybe a little bit. But as I talked to Ralph and Cass and Ray and got educated, I felt like I just gained a family. It just feels to me that these experiences of not being alone and having that safety net of support, of living with a rare blood disorder and not having to do this alone. We always, you know, in conversation, well, what's your hemoglobin? How do you get transfusions? And we talk all about the medical stuff. But for me, what's fun is connecting over the experiences of, well, how do you manage your day? What's your energy like? How is your lifestyle? How do you get through your day? And I think that's where the meaningful connections come in, because that's what it's about. So, Cass, I'm going to just have sure. you add to whatever you want to... Sure. I, I would add, up until May this year, it was tunnel vision sickle cell as a sickle cell advocate. And when I attended the Vision Project event, I had a conversation with Jill, and she mentioned trait, and I automatically thought, oh, sickle cell trait. And I was like, wait, they have trait too? And we started talking about hemoglobin levels and getting stuck over and over again, uh, talking about just all the things we had in common, yellow eyes, yellow faces. I was just blown away. And that day, I left with a bigger community. And I think it's not just sickle cell. It can't just be sickle cell. We all need to move forward together. And it really is gaining family member or finding a long lost family member. Conversations I just learned from Tamara today, they're all malaria-based, evolved out of the necessity to, for protection from malaria. So as we continue to have these types of conversations, I think it's important. And to the point that's being conveyed tonight, it really is about making those connections and gaining a bigger community. Beautifully articulated, both of you. Thank you so much. Let's continue to unpack this a little bit more. I'm going to invite Ralph, Ray, and Rucha to contribute as well from their unique patient perspectives here. Tell me a little bit about why you think it's important for patient communities to start recognizing some of these commonalities. Well, I think it was very important. Coming together with everybody here and just learning about each other's disease, we see it's a red cell. No matter what we look like, no matter what our background is, it's a red cell. We all share mostly things in common than mostly things are different. There's usually just one different defect in the cell that causes our issues, but everything else, we share in common. So we have this community and it's very important to me. And I just think of it as when Michael Jackson put together We Are the World. He got rock stars, he got country stars, he got every genre of music to check their egos at the door and come up with something to feed some starving children. And he got everybody in that room and they produced such an incredible album that stands today. And I think that's what Agios is doing here. And I think that's why we're so happy to be part of this great community. We are the world. We are just a red cell. If you think of it, it's just a red cell. And not look at, everybody tries to divide it, but we are the world. We're just together. And I'm going to hand it over to Rusha. Thanks, Ralph. I probably don't have a worldly response like you did, but for me, um, it's about learning from each other, and it's about growing the pool of people that you can learn from, right? When I was growing up, I didn't know anybody who had thalassemia. And when I came to U.S. through Cooley's, I met all of you guys, a lot of thalassemia patients. Back in May, when Holly arranged everything, it was like, oh, wow, patients with PKD have some of the same 
issues or they go through the same experiences that I do and the same with the sickle cell. I think it's about the fact that everybody here have already said learning from that shared experiences, you can go further. So I think it's about that for me. Well, as a caregiver of an adult living with sickle cell disease, I think what comes to mind the most is strangely therapeutic and not in the traditional sense that we think of therapy or therapeutic medicine, but really in more of a psychosocial sense. It's about being seen. It's about feeling heard. It's about this sense of belonging. And what I have found through this shared experience is that if we're not intentional about recognizing what we have in common, we will unintentionally put ourselves in these silos that divide us. And so just being able to share this experience, share the stage, aloneness is the enemy of resilience. And so it's so important that we are not alone. And when I'm surrounded by everyone on this stage, when I know I can reach out at any time, I'm no longer alone and I'm that much more resilient. Wow, wow, that was beautiful actually. obviously realize that the patient voice here is is super powerful and really that's what's driving all of this. But I want to pull the provider back in, the physician back in for a little bit more of this. We explored this idea of, yes, there is similarity, but we also want to respect individuality. How do you not lose that? And I want to pull in Sujit and Kevin to tell me a little bit about why it's also important to still recognize that there is individuality in these battles. Dr. Zia, that's actually a great question. And so, Sujit, I'm going to be the devil's advocate so that we can help our listeners to draw out the answers. And in particular, I want to point out the fact that I work with all three of these diseases daily. And I see it as a spectrum, all the way from hemolysis with a mix of ineffective erythropoiesis, all the way to predominantly hemolysis, all the way to hemolysis with vasoclusion. And in fact, you and I both know that many of our patients have a mix of these genotypes and phenotypes. So what makes it different? I guess I'm the one that's going to be the contrarian here. I think that's why Holly picked me to be here, because she knows that I have a slightly different opinion. So I'm all for commonality. I'm all for sharing. I'm all for that. But I also want to make sure to say that these are individual diseases, and we're in the age of personalized medicine. And so you have to also separate out the differences in the underlying biology of the disease and therefore the differences in the manifestations that patients have. So PKD patients don't typically have a lot of pain crises. Sickle cell patients do. Thalassemia patients have pain for different reasons that are not related to a vasoclusive crisis. So you have to think about the underlying disease being a little bit different. And I think we should not lose focus and we should not just lump everything together. Yes, I think there are commonalities which should be lumped together, but there should also be individuality and separation based on some of these differences. And so also uh, to your point, uh, Dr. Chef, we also see that each patient walk a very individualized journey based on the experience that they accumulate as their disease manifests differently as well, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah. Someone who requires transfusion, for example, versus someone 
who requires their leg ulcers to be bandaged versus someone who is suffering from shortness of breath because of the pulmonary hypertension. All these are consequences of hemolysis, and yet the journey that they walk is different because of the way things are manifested differently. I completely agree with you that that is important, and we have to make sure that not only providers, but patients and advocates also understand that there should be an individualized approach. We cannot put everything together and treat everybody the exact same way. So Dr. Kuo, you said the word that, uh, that's going to stem the next part of this discussion, and that word is journey. Because yes, there are differences, but the one thing that's an absolute fact is that the journey that these patients take certainly is very similar and similar in a very macroscopic way. When we look at a disease process of any sort, particularly genetically defined disease, we can break it up and say, there's a period of your life when you're a newborn, you're a child. There's a period of your life when you're learning about your body and your disease and you're, and you're becoming an adult slowly. And then you become an adult and the disease looks different in these three phases. And I wanna focus the rest of this discussion on that common journey. And we're gonna pull in Nina Maria and Tamara to this part of the conversation. Nina Maria, looking back at your own journey, what do you wish you knew about how these phases of your life were gonna be different? Do you wish someone had told you, like, hey, adulthood is gonna be different from childhood? Walk me through that. I think it's just that I wish that I knew that there were going to be different phases and different struggles that would come along the way. And when you think about a blood disorder, you think about the physicality of it. You think about transfusions and fatigue, things like that. And while those are big parts of having a blood disorder, it's only one section of how it impacts your life, impacts relationships, it impacts finance, it impacts lifestyle, career options. And so I wish that I were a little bit more prepared and someone said, hey, you're going to see different obstacles come along the way. It's not just physical because they do. They pop up and they kind of catch you off guard. But I think that's just really is part of that journey. I would agree with what you said. And I think I, looking back, underestimated the impact on the journey and the transitions in anemia which is basically what we're dealing with. I would not have expected anemia to impact my life at certain stages to the degree that it did. For example, school, it really impacted my ability to keep up with my peers. And so and that looks like um, not being able to play, not being able to keep up as well, maybe academically. And then in college, like I couldn't party with my friends unless I was super, super organized about it. So that impacted my fun factor. It impacted dating and it impacted who I dated and what they were open to. When it came to getting a job, I wasn't able to pursue getting a medical degree like I wanted to because I certainly couldn't work those hours. I had to have more of a 30 to 40 hour work week kind of job. And eventually I had to leave my job early just because I couldn't even manage a full-time job. It has put me into, like I said, early retirement. So each one of those transitions I didn't know was coming. I didn't know that I had 
to make different decisions than would be expected of a quote-unquote normal person. And the psychological impact that that has on you is gigantic. You feel less than and not worthy, even though you have a reason for it. I think being able to understand that people with thalassemia and people with sickle cell have these similar transitions and journey has been extremely beneficial for me. And I do think that probably advanced aging or premature aging, that's the right word, is realistic and probably what I'm dealing with now. So to recap, I just think transitions are probably a little more difficult and I underestimated it. Thank you for that. For the next part of this discussion, I'm going to pull in Tiana and Laris, and we're going to kind of ask you, you know, in this idea of how information flows around these rare blood disorders. Clinic visits, they go quickly. They go fast. It's hard to have real discussions with your doctor around your various serious disease. But if you could talk to your doctor through each phase of your life, and if you could sort of say, I wish you knew this about my journey, what would you tell them? Well, this is actually really cool because Nina Maria and Tamara and I did not coordinate at all before this panel, but it's exactly what they said. I wish that there was more consideration for the psychosocial issues and the life that I was living outside of those appointments. Nobody talked to me about the fact that I might go through delayed puberty and how isolating and depressing that would be. Or as you get older, there's more pressures and more responsibilities. It was a vicious cycle. For me, stress is my number one trigger for a crisis. And it was always in the appointments, are you in pain? And so much focus of keeping me out of pain. And I just wish that there would have been more implementation of mental health support, because I feel like if that had been the case, then I would have been in less pain. So it's exactly what the two of them just said. I wish that there was more focus on mental health. What about you, Larissa? Thank you. Well, when we talk about transition stages and knowledge of my physicians, I wish my insurance company would pay them for more than 15 minutes for an appointment because I think that limits them and we expect too much from a person. They can't give us the world in 15 minutes. So I wish there wasn't that red tape. I wish they had more resources. So I guess it's the greater system that I wish I could change. However, I think it's important to remember that transitioning from, and I like to think of it as a stage of development, because I have a human development background, a phase comes and goes, but a stage is there to move in from one to another. That transition starts with a parent when a child is diagnosed in an infant, and to get the child involved as much as they can before. We can't do everything for a child till they're 18 and then say, here you go, you're managing your own care. So when the child is three, they can help clean the spot if they're going to get an injection. They can help sort pills when they're five. They can get involved. And I think that's really important. Transition begins early on, much earlier than I think we started in the hospitals. And I think that communication, education, as an adult, I always have appreciated being treated as part of the team. My physicians have included me in the decision-making, and I think that's critical. Thank you for that. We're going to move this conversation now back to the physician side of things, and we're going to think about this now outside of that 15-minute red-taped window. Here you are, Nirmish, having a conversation with patients unfiltered um, who are telling you about transition. And uh, you as a lifespan hematologist, and right next to you, your partner Charles there, clinical psychologist, you guys think about transition a lot. And it's probably hard to convey all the challenges you as healthcare providers 
have to go through and navigate as you try to provide care through phases. Tell us a little bit about that. I think it's an excellent point, and, and I think the, I'm going to double down on a lot of topics that have actually been brought up, and, and I think it's a perfect segue. I'm the director of the transition program at our institution, and to your point about the 15 minutes, I made it a point that I need to have an hour to see my transition patients. Now, that seemed to be excessive, but the reason is that the challenge is that we don't spend enough time with our patients. And we have to recognize kids are different than adults and probably even more specifically, kids are different than adolescent young adults. And I think any of us who have teenagers know that they say things differently. They speak a whole different language, including emojis, et cetera. And and we need to make sure we understand that so that we can talk to them differently to educate them, to have them understand their disease, to empower them to be successful for when they get to the adult world. And I think the last challenge, which I thought of as we're hearing this conversation, is that we don't have enough adult providers to take the baton from the pediatric side. And I think that's where connections that we have right here help. And connections moving forward help because, as we're saying, there are differences and similarities, but one commonality is that we're all hematologists, and I'm gonna take another step here. We're all interested in red blood cell disorders. And so we don't have to be a hematologist physician. We don't have to be a nurse or a nurse practitioner. We can be a psychologist. We can be a social worker. The interest needs to be there. And I think that's where the connections here uh, help with that, that specific challenge. Wow, there's so much rich content. All I can do is really just summarize everything that's been said already. And Nirmish, I, I do not envy or for any of the physicians and medical staff on the team being able to work with patients throughout the lifespan. Because just like you said, every stage is different. When they're children, you really need to gain the trust of the family. And then as they're transitioning adolescence, young adulthood, you really need to gain the trust of the patient at that point. And then as they get older, you need to have them trust themselves, that they know what to do and they know what their body needs and that they can communicate and advocate for themselves. But before, I just love that the conversation is really touched on mental health, because obviously you know how passionate I am about it. Um, But it's something that's not assessed or treated routinely, and we often forget about it. And at every stage, there's going to be challenges that our patients are experiencing. In childhood, you're just trying to suffer through the stress of fitting in. And during adolescence and transitioning to young adulthood, you're suffering through the stress of, what's my career going to be? Am I going to get my education that I've always wanted to get? Am I going to be in a relationship? Am I going to get married? Am I going to have kids someday? And then, of course, older adulthood, you have to confront that fear of death. And what mark am I going to leave on this earth? And I think those are challenges that we're not equipping our patients to confront and and manage. And it has to start in, in early, early life. We have to start that conversation. We do need to start that culture where we're considering mental health and stress in these patients. Thank you for that, both of you. You know, I want to quickly, with this panel, touch on one more piece, which uh, is important to us as we're thinking about the types of learnings or education that's missing as patients are navigating this journey of theirs. I'm going to ask the physicians first. I'm going to ask specifically um, Dr. C, Marie, Clarice, please chime in and let me know when you think about this, what education, what learnings are missing? What are patients not getting that they should be? I think this is a great opportunity because we have... Dr. Anna Merriam, who sees adult patients who maybe didn't get the transition support they need. And then we have Dr. Lobo, who takes care of patients 
And I think we always talk about transition like it's going from your peds doctor to your adult doctor. But Dr. Lobo doesn't have that situation, but still you need transition. So I'm really interested to hear what they have to say. I'll pass it over to Dr. Lobo. Yes, I think that the, the principal point is parents and doctors teach the children to grow. Grow is a process. And in Brazil, a lot of times we stay with the children till 30. Pediatrics don't give the patient to the adult care. A lot of hospitals allow this, but at each point, we are treating this patient as adults. We are teaching them how to grow. We are improving their quality of life, the way they are going to deal with the disease when they grow, when they are adults, when they need to work or to take care of themselves, go alone to the physician and everything. And I think that is something that needs parents, of course, the patient, but all the physician and the people who care, the total care of the patient with sickle cell and thalassemia or any chronic disease has the same situation. This makes all you together being more strong because you have the same issue that is being with a chronic disease. So I think you asked what are individuals who are living with these conditions missing generally, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. just in the transition stage, mm -hmm. but generally? In general. I think fundamentally, I think that if individuals with the, these rare red blood cell disorders that we see here on the distinguished panel here today, I think what fundamentally many are missing is the compassion from our colleagues, hematologists, internists, emergency department physicians, you name it. So the compassion level needs to increase. I think some of that is rooted in what you were saying, that there are constraints within the system in terms of how much time physicians are given to care for patients, and that model definitely needs to be changed. That model will only be changed when reimbursement changes. So there are many, many, many levels in terms of advocacy that need to be changed. I think also individuals who live with rare red blood cell disorders are faced with a community of physicians and providers who are not well-educated in these diseases. And even an individual healthcare provider with the compassion that may be there may not have the expertise and feel limited in that way. And I can't tell you how many patients I see who finally make it to our center and who say, oh my gosh, it's so nice to finally be in a doctor's office where I don't know more than the doctor about my own condition. Obviously, we need more therapies. There's, there's no doubt about that. My other hat is as a hemophilia specialist. The other hat that I wear is an oncologist. And I have a plethora of treatments that I can offer patients. I can extend your factor eight activity by 32 minutes. We can have a whole conversation about that product compared to what you're on. And we have a long way to go in the hereditary red cell disorders, a long, long way to go. And we need that armamentarium to be well stocked. And we need to engage our patients in a level in which there's truly shared decision-making on every level, including issues related to mental health, including issues related to relationships. And I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done for sure. And this vision project is a very, very important, big first step. 
Awesome. Thank you. Amar, can I add something to that as well? Yes. I think, I think one more word that needs to come into our vocabulary as providers is humility. We don't know everything there is to know. And I was on a patient panel a month or so ago, and one of the patients recounted his life at 50-something years old. And I just couldn't believe it. I felt the need to apologize to him on behalf of the medical profession because nobody had taken the time to find out more or pick up the phone and call somebody who might know more and that continued to treat him inappropriately. And I think that humility needs to come from us. I don't pretend to be an expert on leukemia. I don't take care of patients with leukemia because I am not an expert on that. And I think that if you don't know enough about the patient's disease, you need to call somebody. In this day and age, it's easy enough to look it up on the internet. So you need to have that humility to understand your limitations and do better by your patient. Thank you for that point. You know, as we come full circle on this panel, I want to go back to the patient voice. And I want to bring in Cass, Alejandra, and Ralph and sort of get a sense from you guys as you were going through this transition process phase to phase. What pieces of education, what gaps were there in the ability for physicians to deliver effective education, communication to you to make sure that you you understood what was going on? I thought it was very important to have a relationship with both my hematologist and we touched a little bit on this, but I'm a firm believer in integrating your primary care physician because you have a global burden on a very small amount of hematologists and that's not realistic if we're looking at numbers. So I always encourage patients to find a primary care physician that's willing to go to bat for you. You don't need someone who knows everything. You just need someone who cares enough about you. Some of the best care that I've ever gotten in the ER was a doctor coming up to me saying, I don't know anything about sickle cell. What do I do? And I was able to provide direction and get good care, get in, get out. So that's my advice. That's something I've learned throughout advocacy is that we can't be ultra-reliant. Of course, if you have access, access is another part of this conversation. If you have access, obviously, see a specialist, but also, in addition to that, supplement it. Also follow with a primary care physician. I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Yeah, no, for sure. We're just trying to get a better idea of, as you navigated the journey, did you wish there was things that your physician was better at communicating to you or helping you understand? Are there things that can be added to help patients understand their their journey as they're getting older a little better? Yeah, I think that it's like Has was saying, it's a big disconnection between a lot of the doctors and the patient. A lot of times they don't know absolutely nothing about the disease and they just pretend that they know. And all that happens is that instead of to have a good care, a lot of people they come back home getting more sick, and they don't feel compassion. I see a lot of times the compassion is a component that we all have to have for the patients, and it's the lack of that. It's imperative, and I think it's so important that everybody is on the same page and treat a patient like a human being. They've been going through so much, 
they, they had it to endure life that not a lot of people has to do it. And when we don't sit down and think how is their life and every day in their lives and just treat them like, a, okay, you just need a baby aspirin and you are okay. That's not true. We need to get a better understanding and we need to have more education for the community. And I'm not talking all about the medical community, but a lot of times the patients and the parents, they need to be educated. That is so important that all of them are educated about their diseases, what they can do, what they cannot do, and help transition our children since a young age and give them jobs because they're going to be adults. Something that I've been always thinking, and I always say, and I think that all as a partners we say, it. what would happen if I die? So you prepare your children for when you are going to die, but when it's a normal child, which I quoted, that a normal child. So why don't you start to do it in a young age when you know that these kids, they have to transition and they have to live with this for the rest of their lives, not us. Can I make a comment? Of course. This panel give us one very important opportunity to listen. And listening to these patients show me that we are in the same page, all of us, all over the world. Sometimes we thought that we are in Brazil or in Africa or in the U.S. and things are different. But I think that all the patients face the same problem. And I a little disagree about compassion because I think that we need to be ally, not have compassion only, but be together. If we don't be together, we don't feel this person as we. We feel different. You have a problem and I am God. It can't be like that. We are in the same page, patients and doctors. It's a beautiful thought. Thank you for sharing that. Ralph, you want to close out our patient panel here with uh, your thoughts? Sure. Transition wasn't something we really thought we had to handle because when we were diagnosed, us old people, when we were diagnosed, we didn't think we had to worry about transitioning from pediatric care to adulthood. So it wasn't something I wish we were educated on and I wish we knew how to start. But I think what Larissa said and what Alejandro said is I just wish that we started thinking about we're just so used to being our own advocates. I'm just to be my own advocate. So finding a, the right hematologist was something I had to interview people. I would go to them and say, hey, how much do you know about thalassemia and stuff like that. Getting the proper care and going from that pediatric world to the adulthood, like they said, when you're younger, you have to start educating the patient. Let them know that they have a voice. Let your patients know they have a voice. Ask them, what can we do better? What do you need? And from that age on, let them start taking care of themselves, like parents that are in the room or listening. You can't do everything for your child. Like Alejandro said, what happens if something happens to you? I had to learn how to navigate the insurance industry on my own because my mom, I was always under her insurance. Then, of course, it, things changed. So with the help of social workers that were provided and things that the hospital did help us with, we just learned how to do it on our own. But now we're seeing that life expectancy is a lot greater. So there should be programs in place to actually transition from the pediatric centers to the, to the adult centers. And the biggest thing I want to let the patients know is don't be afraid of growing up and growing old and getting to that adulthood 
where you have to take care of yourself because mom or dad and got you to your 18 and then from here on in, it's all about you because doctors aren't going to ask mommy or daddy what you need. They're going to ask you. So we just got to embrace the change. The plea is out there. We need more experts in this hematology field that care about thalassemia, that care about sickle cell, that care about PKD. We just need more adult hematologists to take care of that because we can't transition if we have no place to transition to or no one to transition to. And don't be afraid to ask this patient panel experts, what can I do to help or what can I do to learn more about thalassemia, to learn more about sickle cell? And I guess that's where the humility comes in that Dr. Chef was talking about. We can't know it all. Not everybody knows it all. And it's just got to humble yourself and say, you know, you're my first thalassemia patient. What do I do? And I'll tell you, here's the expert to call. Just do whatever she tells you to do. It's just like that. So with that being said, I think this is a fantastic project we're all part of. And I just thank you all for listening to us. Let's hear it for the patient panel and provider panel that we have here. I'm always humbled hearing the voice of this collective community that we've built. And it's such a beautiful thing to know that we have so much to learn and so much to share with each other. It's just such an energizing experience. You know, at Agios, one of the great parts is we're sort of unrelentingly committed to generate and fuel connection because we in turn are fueled by these types of connections. It's selfish on our part. This is going to power me through the rest of the year. And thank you for that. It's a beautiful thing, right? Because there's a lot of power in unity. There's a lot of power of voice in unity. It's just a lot of fun to be together like this in this type of a setting. There's a goal at Agios to really become a true patient ally and strengthen our connections with the entire community, provider, patient, across the board with each other. And this type of cross-diagnosis collaboration isn't something that we're necessarily used to seeing. It's different. It's special. One might say it's revolutionary. Yeah? And with that, you guys ready? I am so pleased to officially announce the Red Cell Revolution. So the Red Cell Revolution is uh, the name of an Agios uh, patient advocacy movement that is sort of driven by our relentless desire to find common ground with this group of people, with this community, with these communities, to really ensure that you hold us accountable for creating and maintaining synergy amongst you all, for driving unity amongst the individuals who suffer with red blood cell disorders, and to amplify our voices in the name of change and progress. And with that, I'm going to welcome Holly John, Senior Director of Patient Advocacy. I want to hear really from you right now what you're excited about when we talk about the Red Cell Revolution. Well, first I have to say I'm incredibly humbled by all of this. This has been a lot of hard work and I have so appreciated the journey that you have all been on and how you have taught every one of us. What I am most excited about this group of working with these amazing people, both physicians and patients, from PKD, from thalassemia, from sickle cell, is that we're connecting. We're creating a community that is going to collaborate in a very unique way. The Red Cell Revolution Council will work together this next year to identify common gaps 
across the three hemolytic anemias, and they're going to use their collective voices to raise awareness and bring change about. And we're going to do this where we continue to respect the individuality of the diseases. And we're also going to do this in a unique way and that we're going to use an evidence-based approach. And I can't wait for 2023 where we can share with everyone here what we've learned with the hope that we're going to improve patient outcomes and better drug development. Thanks, Holly. Thank you. With that, thank you all for being here today with us and following us on this journey. It's a lot of fun for me to say this is my job now. I do things like this. And for you guys to be here in this audience and sharing that passion, backing that up is beautiful. So as we close out tonight, I want to remind you guys, we've got the three podcasts under that Agios umbrella. Thou Pals, Just Listen, and Cheat Codes. You can find them anywhere where podcasts are available. Subscribe, follow, share. Peace, everybody. <laughs>